Welcome to Trafe, a debatably Jewish podcast. This is the fourth episode of Sam and David listen to obscure Polish music from the 19th century. Um, I'm kidding. Uh, I'm doing a bad form of sarcasm there, possibly. But it's been a week of nationalism here in Montreal. We just celebrated St. Jean. Uh, parts of the West Island celebrated Canada Day. And yesterday was the 4th of July. And you know what that means? It means commemorating the siege on Jerusalem by the Romans in 69 CE. <laughs> and the traditional way of not eating all day. Yeah. So who do we have on the show today, Sam? We have Amy Darwish to talk to us about the 10-year anniversary of boycott, divestment, and sanctions. We're going to do the regular news segment, uh, brief in memoriam, and we are going to introduce our new segment, Shkoyach. Great. Groovy. So the new anti-Semitism numbers are out. Benebrith, along with Statistics Canada, both released hate crime reports documenting the levels of anti-Semitism within Canada over the last two years, uh, respectively, between the two organizations. And Statistics Canada's report found that attacks against Muslim people increased since the previous year and were more likely to be violent offenses than any other religious group, the same as the previous year, whereas attacks on Jewish people decreased by about 25% and 88% of the reported incidents were nonviolent. Meanwhile, Benebrith released a press release and an accompanying document highlighting the fact that anti-Semitism was at its highest level in recorded history. They provided a bunch of examples of what this anti-Semitism looked like in 2014. So someone in Toronto at an Israel support rally was harassed when she was walking home carrying an Israeli flag. Someone wrote, fuck Israel, spray painted on the road in Calgary. These were controlled examples that B'nai B'rith puts forward in terms of anti-Semitic attacks in 2014. Yeah, so the Jewish press has essentially just been picking up the B'nai B'rith report. They're essentially republishing the fact that Canada now has the highest level of anti-Semitism it ever has had, which is just not what the Statistics Canada report suggests. Um, so I guess for me, there's two things about this. There's the question of like the fact that the B'nai B'rith report doesn't match the Statistics Canada report. And that's one thing that has to be touched on. And I think you did a bunch of research to touch on that. And then the other one is just the bigger question about what is anti-Semitism and what is the place of white Ashkenaz Jews in a settler colonial context? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the thing the thing about the differentiation between the hate crime numbers, I think just has to do with the role of B'nai B'rith as an ideological pro-Israel lobby group. And that's it. But the other issue when considering the stats can report is who is reporting these numbers? Who is more likely to report? And the report itself goes out of its way to mention uh, several government studies which come to the conclusion that only one third of incidents regarding hate crime are reported. And these have to be reported to police, which and they have to be reported to institutions which themselves perpetuate violence. The Benebrith report actually mentions the Toronto Police Services report about hate crime for 2014 to justify their numbers. They say that the police numbers back there is because it features an increase, and they say that Jews are the most targeted group. But this is the same police force whose board just voted to continue the policy of carding, a policy that's seen more black men stopped arbitrarily by police than exists in the entire city of Toronto. So it's just a stark embodiment of how ridiculous this is, the idea that you know only people who report these things to police are experiencing hate crimes, where the police themselves are perpetuating hate crimes. 
yeah, there's de there's a definitely absurdity in that process, um, and it actually demonstrates a certain kind of privilege of the established Jewish community or like the white Jewish community to be able to call the police and to be able to report certain f incidents that are discriminatory or have anti-Jewish dynamics within them. Another part of this report that I think is important to touch on as well is that we are really defining anti-Semitism really broadly and doing it in a way where we kind of conflate systemic and interpersonal acts. So in the case of European descended white Jews, we are clearly not subject to forms of systemic anti-Semitism or anti-Jewish violence. In fact, we're involved in perpetrating it. Uh, well, not perpetrating anti-Semitic violence, but uh, in maintaining a white supremacist settler colonial system. When we're complaining about these B'nai B'rith reports, it's not just a question of us disagreeing. It's that the act of blinding the Jewish community to the privilege that we have is a further violence, right? Like, it's not mm. just a question of... Like, this report... B'nai B'rith is using this report not just to weaponize anti-Semitism against Palestinian people, but also to further conceal the reality of whiteness within the Ashkenazi Jewish community. I would say, yeah. And there's a responsibility, or maybe the responsibility is the wrong word, but I think it's relevant for us to address that and not just say we disagree with the fact that anti-Semitism is on the rise, but that we need to like be clear about why they're saying that and what effect that has mm. on other people. Right. The last couple of months in Montreal and in Quebec and in Canada have been pretty severe as far as the state trying to regulate um, Muslim communities. It's happened in a bunch of different forms from the Harper and the conservative government to the more localized Quebec context. In the last couple of weeks, the Parti libéral du Québec, the PLQ, has put forward two bills at the National Assembly that basically revamp the Quebec Charter of Values. So there's a big concern about head coverings of various uh, regards and the ability for people to access or be part of public services. There are many other layers, but that's kind of the, the central axis upon which it rests. Yeah, and it's worth noting again for our listeners who are outside of the Quebec context that the last time that the previous government tried to introduce the Charter of Values, it was also targeting religious garb on Jewish people and received a lot of blowback from the Jewish community. Yeah, there's a way in which political commentators are talking about what's happening now as a more refined version of the Charter of Values, where it now only directly targets women w with head coverings. So this is what's happening at the Quebec level, and there actually is surprisingly not a lot of backlash. Uh, there are a few articles being written, but it's kind of being passed quietly in different bills. So it's not happening in one kind of monolithic way, but it's happening sideways. So as that's been happening in Montreal, we've had a huge amount of state response to ISIS or all the public discussion around ISIS and the fear mongering around ISIS. And what ends up happening is the targeting of Muslim communities in Montreal. Yeah, and, and one thing that's been happening is this language of de-radicalization that's come up as a code word for repression of Muslim communities. Yeah, particularly the French press, but I don't actually want to single them out. I think the English press has done an equally horrible job, have targeted several community centers and schools and individuals. There have been several people who may have gone to Syria and Turkey and Iraq to fight, but it's kind of unclear and it's not confirmed, but they've all been used as examples for the kind of dangerous threat of Islam and the need to police these communities. 
Yeah, and this and this project has brought in the Jewish community this time, and I think that's part of why it's a little more successful. Is instead of having the Jewish community on the streets in opposition, you actually have the Jewish community as a partner in this project. And this kind of ties in in a complicated way to what had happened in the last month in Montreal. There's a mayor in town called Denis Coderre, and in the wake of the Charlie Hebdo attacks in France, he promised to have some kind of a summit with French leaders and Quebec leaders about Islam, pretty much. I mean, they, they use a language of like living together and tolerance, but it's basically about dealing with Islam in major urban centers with large Muslim communities. So they had this summit called Vivre Ensemble, Live Together. And essentially agreed to meet up a few weeks later at an anti-Semitism conference. A lot of people from the institutionalized Jewish community came, had a sit down with the mayor, and most of this meeting seemed to surround the language of de-radicalization. Again, we've talked about this before, but it's part of pushing this narrative within the Jewish community that sees Islam as the singular threat to Jewish safety, uh, excluding almost all other factors. And it's this narrative that's being peddled in order to bring the Jewish community in in a more effective repression of the Muslim community. Yeah, and there's no way of disarticulating this from the question of Palestine because all of the newspaper articles and radio broadcasts that discussed or talked about this event mentioned Palestine, mentioned the quote-unquote rising tide of anti-Zionism and how that ties into anti-Semitism. So there's the persistent forever threat of Islam on the Jewish community at home, but also in Palestine or Israel, right? Like there's a way in which that's used in both directions. Yeah, at the conference, Luciano Del Negro from the Center uh, for Israel and Jewish Affairs, an alleged former Maoist, said the hatred of Israel becomes an excuse for the victimization of Jews. And he talked about how he's glad that they're cracking down on anti-Semitism, not just on the right, but now on the left as well, as a, you know, symbolizing the opposition to Israeli apartheid. Yeah, I mean, once again, I think, like we talked about the anti-Semitism figures in the previous segment, it's important to address when forms of anti-Semitism crop up, I don't think either of us are going to come out and say that no, these things aren't real. The question is, how are we framing it and how are we positioning Jews as a recipients of that? I think the fact that this conference is happening and the way that the Jewish community is participating in the repression of the Muslim community at a level that has maybe exceeded what has happened so far in terms of cooperating with the institutions of the city of Montreal and Quebec is something that will hopefully be a wake-up call for Jews on the left to more effectively use the avenues available to them to actually resist and stand up against this vilification of the Muslim community and the continued institutional repression against the Muslim yeah. community here. So a few weeks ago, the Jewish National Fund announced that they're opening a new $100 million Israel Education Advocacy Center in the United States. Now, it's unclear where in the United States this is going to be opened, what this center exactly will do, because the press release doesn't mention it. We sent them an email to figure out where exactly this place is going to be, but they didn't respond. So we're at a bit of a loss as to how to describe this any further. But I think the important takeaway from this is that $100 million is a lot of money. And this is happening now because the institutionalized Jewish community in North America is terrified of the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement against Israel, and they're doing whatever they can to push back against it. So the money that went toward this center was donated by the Bruchin family. Uh, they actually have a photo up. Did you see the photo, Sam, on the, on the website? I'm just on the website now, jewishbusinessnews.com, which I didn't know existed until right now. Um, he looks very old, very close to death. 
I'm wondering, do you have any idea where he uh, made some of his money? Oh, he built uh, what they call tract homes in California, which I guess is a is a euphemism for mansions. Huh. Anyway, uh, according to Jewish Business News, he remained very humble <laughs> and lived in one of his first modest properties that he built. Yeah. So anyway, he donated his entire estate to the JNF uh, when he died, and this is what they decided to do with it. So the JNF has actually been in the news in Canada recently because. Mike Huckabee was invited to speak at a JNF function in Ottawa. So a bunch of liberal or lefty Jews in Ottawa mobilized against his speech because of several transphobic comments he'd made before. He is a fundamentalist Christian who has said this stuff left, right, and center for the last 20 or 30 years. So it should come to no surprise to the organizers. But I guess this was a flashpoint for these organizers to mobilize against. One thing that we should underline here is that the JNF is a horrible organization. They're a borderline genocidal organization. And the idea of people on the left, or even liberal folks, opposing a speaker coming to build the JNF coffers itself is a contradiction. This organization should be destroyed. Yeah, if you're mobilizing against a Mike Huckabee, the JNF should be on your list as well. Uh, the JNF has long been a tool in the settlement and colonization of Palestine. It is a quasi-governmental body that requires that all land be sold to Jews. This is on the books. The JNF is a Jewish-only organization and controls a sizable amount of the land in Israel. It's, it's a high percentage. When we talk about the JNF, it's not just about the little blue box. It's about a very important entity in the pillar of apartheid and colonialism in Israel. So a little bit of mixed messaging from the organizers of this anti-Mike Huckabee event. So in response to Mike Huckabee's disinvitation, Barbara Kay, everyone's favorite far-right commentator, put an opinion editorial in the National Post condemning the JNF for buckling to what she called LGBT militants. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I have nothing to say to Barbara Kay at the end of the day. The whole Kay clan, I, they're just a disaster. And it's scary and sad that they take up so much space in the Canadian media landscape. But Sam, since John Kay took over the Walrus, he's been reborn as a as a Canadian liberal. Yeah, I, honestly, I, I I I'm just I check out. I can't I can't read this person. I, I think like. it's fine. That's fine. I'm just seeing if there's any choice quotes, but I think it's there's, just yeah. Her writing is so rambly that there's nothing we can use here. I mean, there's like this would not have been tolerated for a minute if directed against any other entity. What does that even mean? Like that doesn't make sense. People protest things all the time. There are these ex absurd kind of like statements of fact by writers like Barbara Kay that are just like objectively not true. You could talk to people and discover that this is not the case, but they write these things with such sureness and certainty. It's the beauty of the op-ed. Yeah. Another recent development uh, in terms of the Jewish National Fund in Canada is that there is a dinner that happened in Ottawa recently that was paying tribute to John Baird, the ex-foreign minister of Canada, under the conservative government, and they announced that they're building a park for him in Palestine. This is just representative of the ever-expanding ties between the Canadian and Israeli states. Canada doesn't seem to be satisfied with the amount of parks on unceded land here, so they're expanding to Palestine to create more parks on more unceded lands. This park, of course, follows in the footsteps of Canada Park. And this is just ties back into the function of the JNF, of displacing people from their land, you know, replacing them with nice parks and trees and bike paths. It's a key element in the displacement of Palestinians from their land. We've had to deal with some serious losses in the last couple of weeks. 
We're going to take the next couple of minutes to reflect on their lives. First, I'd like to remember the life of former Quebec Premier Jacques Parizeau, who died in early June. Parizeau bucked late 20th century conventions by blaming money and the ethnic vote for the referendum loss in 1995. He later clarified that this was a reference to the Jews, Greeks, and Italians. All things come to an end, and we are glad that you're now one of them. Speaking of death, in January, B'nai B'rith made the decision to shut down the print edition of its press organ, the Jewish Tribune, Zichrona Livracha. We apologize for being so late on this story. As one of only two Canadian Jewish papers, the Tribune did not shy away from white supremacist anti-Muslim rhetoric or overt support for reactionary policies in Canada. B'nai B'rith's press release promised an online presence and revisioning of sorts. However, six months later, we have been collectively spared from both online and print iterations. More on this story as it develops. Finally, it comes as a great surprise to announce that the Anti-Defamation League's Abraham Henry Foxman is retiring in just a matter of days. For a more specific figure, just visit whenisabefoxmanretiring.com. Now, this is a big deal. This is a guy who the forward referred to as the Jewish Pope and has seen statements released by world leaders after he announced his retirement plans. It's hard to overstate the power he accumulated during his 50 years of the ADL, but you might remember him more clearly as the guy who lobbied against the U.S. recognizing the Armenian Genocide, or the guy who publicly opposed an Islamic community center being built in New York City. Or maybe you remember him as the breakout star of Yoav Shamir's 2009 documentary, Defamation. Foxman's main legacy is his transformation of the ADL from a civil rights organization to an Israeli lobby group and his public role in redefining anti-Semitism to include opposition to the state of Israel, which makes some of his final accomplishments while still in office at the ADL a bit confusing. At the end of May, Foxman wrote an editorial in JTA condemning anti-BDS laws as undemocratic, and then this month, he publicly condemned a member of Knesset and former Israeli ambassador to the U.S., Michael Oren, for an anti-Muslim attack against Obama, he wrote in an article for Foreign Policy. For anyone still listening to us continuing to yammer on about Jewish things, that article is so racist, it is remarkable that 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 person had a press team that saw it and let him publish it. Yeah, following the condemnation by Foxman, there have been several other organizations. I think the New York Times actually condemned it themselves. Um, but Foxman was first to the floor uh, with condemning this, which was quite unusual for him. Uh, but don't worry, he hasn't changed too much. He recently called the Pope's recognition of Palestine disappointing. You know, he still condemns BDS as anti-Semitic. He just doesn't think legislative tactics are useful against it. But it still raises the question of why this change is happening now at the twilight of his career, why this is happening. So in one way, you might think that maybe he's trying to massage his legacy a bit to put himself on the right side of history, but this isn't really moving too far. So it's a bit unclear what's going on with Abraham Foxman. If you have any ideas, please write in, trafepodcast at gmail.com. So to Abraham Henry Foxman, the Jewish Tribune, and Jacques Parizeau, goodbye. On behalf of Trafe Podcast. So we've decided to add a new segment to the show. We're calling it Shkoyach, and it has a pretty basic premise. So Shkoyach is an abbreviation of Yasher Koach, which means literally strength forward. But it's something that growing up uh, in a Jewish community is often said as a bravo, an encouragement, just a positive affirmation to people after they've done something great. So every week, uh, we'll each bring someone or some group of people who we'd like to give a shkoyach to. So Sam, who's your shkoyach of the week? I got a really special one this week, David. My, my shkoyach goes to the Brain Trust at the Jewish Political Action Committee 
for their commitment to new levels of demonic behavior. The Jewish Political Action Committee is a group of fellows, I have to presume, in New York City who hired a bunch of Mexican men to dress up in payas and tefillin and protest the Pride Parade in Manhattan. What? Yeah, there's so many levels here. It's kind of questionable of if we're, we should even talk about it. And these people were deeply unapologetic about it. Like it was not, I mean, there was an interview, I think the, the Post or the Daily News, and they pretty much said that they didn't want their boys, quote unquote, to be exposed to this kind of debauchery and evilness at, that they would be witness to at the Pride Parade. I have a lot of questions. I can try to answer. Well, I think, is this the same group? Last year, there was a Israel parade in New York, and some fringe group paid off workers. They couldn't find people to protest the LGBTQ contingent. Is this the same group? I don't know. I mean, unfortunately, the reporting wasn't expansive. As I continue to read the bottom of this article that was updated... Um, it turns out that the Jewish Political Action Committee may actually consist of just one man. What's more, this isn't his first hate-filled rodeo, as evidenced by these photos from last year's Israel Day Parade. Uh, yes. I mean, I'm kind of torn between A, finding it hilarious that this man couldn't find any people to protest this thing he wanted to protest, so he hired people to dress up as the people who wanted to be doing it. But then at the same time, it's disgusting. Like, forcing Mexican people to do this is pretty, pretty ridiculous. Yeah, it's, it, again, so shkoyach to this fellow for new levels of demonry. Man, that's pretty intense. How about you? What do you have, to, what do you have today? Um, so my shkoyach of the week is going out to Derek Nepenak, uh, who is the Grand Chief of the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs, along with uh, Jim Baer, who's the Chief of the Broken Head Ojibwe Nation, for calling out this rambling racist tirade against the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, along with Indigenous peoples in general, uh, that appeared in the Manitoba Jewish Post News by Bill Morant. Bill Morant is a former Manitoba provincial court judge who occasionally writes op-eds for the Manitoba Jewish Post News. Which you read regularly? I actually started reading it a month ago because of the show. Okay. I had never, but their website is almost unusable. But this was on the website, and I feel like I can't quite do justice to the article. I feel like the best way is actually just uh, Nepenak had a quote. In response, he said that the writer's attitude not only demonstrates the privilege and entitlement he is taking for granted, it also demonstrates a very disrespectful approach to the current dialogue around the TRC and a rejection of historical truths about the treatment of Aboriginal peoples. He called it the Half-Truths and Re Recriminations Commission and just suggested that Indigenous peoples need to get over it. The editor responded, because everyone was asking for an apology, with an apology that spent most of the second paragraph attacking CTV and CBC for getting the name of their paper wrong, and then spent the rest of it saying that maybe the language should have been different, but he's not going to censor his reporter. And he took down the report. So some of our listeners might be shocked that the Manitoba Jewish Post and News would carry such a hateful article, but those listeners have clearly never actually read the Manitoba Jewish Post and News. Some other hits from the Manitoba Jewish Post and News, the article with the headline, how about those lovely cutters in which the author says who in their right mind could show any sympathy to the cutter family or quote that unbelievably stupid mother of his or the amazing headline a memoir offers firsthand proof that Islam and liberalism are incompatible, which was written by the editor himself or the op-ed comparing Obama to Hitler in the work of praising Jabotinsky. Are you giving your square to the paper 
I'm giving my shkoyach to uh, the people who had the courage of calling out the paper. Oh, that's good. For its racism. Okay. Uh, they pushed it pretty far. It's really hard to do because most of the time when you confront people who are writing like this, you're met with attacks of anti-Semitism. Yeah. The CBC and CTV carried the reports after Jim Bear and Derek Nipponak made it public that they were upset about this, that this was not acceptable, and demanded an apology. Of course, the editor has responded with a defensive non-apology is apparently going to publish a response in the next issue. Yeah. You should read right. that Jabotinsky article. The headline was, you might criticize Netanyahu, but would you criticize Jabotinsky? You would never criticize Jabotinsky. We can take that for granted. Yeah. Also, Obama is Hitler. Anyway, that's my shkoyach for the week. Great. Thank you, David. So we're pretty excited to have Amy Darwish in the studio today. Amy hails from the land of cowboy boots and conservative party members winning federal elections with Stalin-esque majorities. Uh, Big disclaimer, we have both organized together for a couple of years. So hi, Amy. Hey, Sam. David's here as well. Hi. So Amy, can you talk a bit about when you started getting involved with formal uh, organizing for Palestinian self-determination? So I first became um, involved in Palestine solidarity organizing through my work with Tadamon, which is a Montreal-based collective uh, that works in solidarity with struggles for justice in the Middle East. In particular, I was organizing around Artists Against Apartheid, which has over the years organized a number of concerts in solidarity with the Palestinian struggle for uh, self-determination. Some of Artists Against Apartheid's other initiatives also included doing workshops with a number of artists, as well as launching the Montreal Artist Declaration in February of 2010 uh, with the support of 500 Montreal artists. And one of the elements that the Artists Against Apartheid Collective operated around was the question of the cultural boycott, right? That's right. Could you maybe just talk a little bit about the idea of the cultural boycott? So the cultural boycott traces its inception back to the Palestinian call for artistic and cultural boycott, which was launched in 2004. The main intention behind the call um, was to sort of highlight the many ways in which Israel uses cultural production as a way of painting itself as a liberal and progressive nation, and also um, as a way of whitewashing the many ways in which it continues to perpetuate systemic racism and colonialism in Palestine. In particular, the cultural boycott calls on all artists to refuse to perform um, in Israel, as well as uh, to refuse all forms of state-sponsored collaboration with Israeli state-funded projects and institutions. I mean, the the cross-section of people who may hypothetically listen to this probably knows what the three demands are, but if they don't, do you mind just sharing what the three BDS demands are? Sure. So BDS basically calls on its allies within the Palestine Solidarity Movement to boycott Israeli products and institutions, to divest and withdraw pensions and funds that have holdings within Israeli corporations, and to push for the imposition of sanctions um, and embargoes upon the Israeli state. There are three um, primary demands of the BDS movement. First of all, for uh, Israel to end the occupation and colonization of Palestinian land, including the dismantling of the apartheid wall, for Israel to end 
its practices of institutional racism against Palestinian citizens of Israel, as well for Israel to respect the right of return of Palestinian refugees in the diaspora. I was just wondering, was there initially a negative response to these kind of this kind of organizing? I would say that Artists Against Apartheid um, generated a number of different reactions within uh, Montreal's artistic and cultural community. Certainly, there were a number of people who were supportive right from the outset. It should be noted that a lot of the early organizing efforts of Artists Against Apartheid started in the wake of Operation Cast Lead, which killed thousands of Palestinians in Gaza. And in many ways, part of the strengths of Artists Against Apartheid is it reached out to people who were perhaps supportive of Palestine, but were maybe not comfortable attending teach-ins or participating in demonstrations. There were, however, a number of people who were really hesitant or critical of the cultural boycott for a number of reasons. Some expressed concerns around censorship and artistic freedom. Others were also concerned that their participation in the cultural boycott would sort of serve to isolate Israeli artists who were critical of the state, although it should be noted that Israeli artists who are critical of Israeli apartheid are not supposed to be boycotted. I would say, above all, however, what Artists Against Apartheid did do was sort of really created a space where Palestine was on the agenda for artists in ways that maybe it hadn't been before, irrespective of whether or not people were supportive of it, people were talking about the declaration with their friends and maybe engaging um, with questions of Israeli apartheid and Palestinian self-determination as well as their own role as artists around their participation in struggles for justice. So the discussion that came from the declaration, have you seen that discussion change over the last few years? Yes, I would I would say it's shifted it shifted quite considerably. Um I think as BDS has become significantly less marginalized and has sort of occupied much more of a place in sort of mainstream political discourse, a lot more artists are are significantly more receptive to it. I think you know, the support of a number of of really high-profile artists, um be they the concert cancellations of figures such as Lauren Hill, the Pixies, Gil Scott Heron, among many others, as well as as a number of artist declarations, the one in Montreal being only one of many, you know, has made this discussion much more visible. Yeah, didn't that fellow from Sonic Youth just write a long essay about BDS? Oh, Thurston Moore. Yeah. He did. <laughs> so, kind of talked about the artist side of things in Montreal. I'm wondering if you feel comfortable speaking to what the response was within like Palestine solidarity movements at the time or within the Quebec left? Like, I mean, when you came here, because I think you came here kind of at the cusp of when things were really starting in earnest. I would say that that BDS was actually fairly marginalized at the beginning within the broader Palestine solidarity movement and within the Quebec left more generally. At the time, I believe many felt that its demands were somewhat too radical There were a number of concerns expressed, again, around academic and cultural freedom, as well as concerns raised that it would isolate Israelis who were critical of their of their state. So we're just talking about how it's changed over time, the discussion, how mainstream it's gotten. But what do you think has actually pushed it in that direction? Like, what do you think the factors are that have changed the discourse here? I don't know. I think credit has to be given to Palestinian organizers for kind of mobilizing a very strong international campaign 
it really gives people that live outside of Palestine an opportunity to tangibly do solidarity in a way that people understand, which has its critiques. But I think that there's something very tangible about the way that BDS is laid out for people. I also feel that it kind of uh, manages to sort of counter state level inaction and complicity in Israeli apartheid and sort of create space for autonomous actions. Um, Rather than waiting for power structures to see ground, it creates space in which people can can organize in solidarity with the Palestinian struggle for self-determination. So with that, with that same success, though, like there's also a crackdown that's now happening. You're seeing the Canadian federal government come out pretty hard in support of Israel, you know, pushing a strong anti-Semitism agenda that includes pretty much all forms of anti-Zionism or Palestinian solidarity, and they're instituting this anti-BDS legislation. So have you seen work to combat this pressure, or how do you feel about this type of stuff coming down? Um, I would say first and foremost that while it's definitely worrisome. It's, it isn't anything new. There's been long-standing Canadian complicity and support um, in Israeli apartheid. Certainly this has accelerated recently with uh, the memorandum of understanding um, that was signed between Israel and Canada in January 2014, um, as well as the speculation more recently where Stephen Blaney talked about the possibility of hate crimes being used to combat BDS organizing. The criminal code was actually quietly changed the year before that to sort of amend the definition of hate crimes, whereby in addition to being on the basis of race or religion, it would now include national origin, which was widely perceived as a way in which uh, resistance to Israeli apartheid could be considered a hate crime. Um, I would say that in many respects, it would actually be very, very difficult to use hate crimes to target BDS organizing, that BDS campaigns in and of themselves wouldn't meet criteria for it, that if the government were to try to do that, it would most certain, it would almost certainly get subject to a Charter of Freedoms challenge, from what I've understood. Um, I think it's also important to note that conflating Palestine solidarity organizing and criticisms of Israeli apartheid and anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism is certainly nothing new, nor is Canadian support or complicity in in Israeli apartheid. Um, The government has long been using our state surveillance and repression as a way of cracking down on the efforts of racialized in diaspora communities within Canada to take part in resistance movements, be it through the listing of Hezbollah or the efforts to strip Irfan of his charitable status because its organizing in solidarity with Gaza was seen as being in support of Hamas. While there hasn't necessarily been been a collective response on the part of the Palestine Solidarity Movement uh, to these efforts on, on the government's part. Many groups have sort of spoken out. I mean, it does seem like the Israeli state and the associated Israeli advocacy groups are actually panicking right now in a way that they haven't been before in terms of where they're spending their money and where they're focusing things and how they're talking about things. And it seems like a lot of this is related to a lot of information that's come out recently about actually revealing the economic toll that BDS is having on the Israeli economy. And it does, I don't think that numbers have actually come out like this before to show it this clearly. In talking about the context and talking about 
like obviously a lot of these measures of state repression are pretty familiar, but it seems like this is at a moment where it actually feels different because of this context. Like, do you think that's true? Um, I mean, I think I think you're referring to the UN trade report that uh, demonstrated something like a 50% drop in uh, foreign investment. I think also more recently, the, the Rand Corporation published a report stating that Israel was losing approximately $4.7 billion a year as a result of its ongoing occupation and as a result of uh, boycott, divestment, and sanctions campaigns. I think there are definitely limitations in terms of, of seeing the success of the boycott movement in terms of financial units and transactions. It does, however, illustrate the extent to which the movement has succeeded in isolating Israel and to make the occupation significantly less profitable. Would Do you think you could speak to some of those limitations? I think um, the ways in which BDS has become so mainstream, while it has a number of possibilities, it, it has a number of pitfalls as well. BDS was always intended to be a tactic and not just, not as a goal unto in and of itself, right? And I believe that to some degree, as it's taken on momentum, there's a tendency for Palestine solidarity organizing to become very much about coming up with particular targets and figuring out what campaigns to boycott and what companies and what targets to boycott and to some degree that this is that this has become somewhat removed from the broader context of what's happening in Palestine that rather than talk about the popular resistance within Palestine the impacts of the apartheid wall you know and efforts of Palestinians to resist its expansion their focus is now upon you know caterpillar bulldozers or rather than talk about Palestinian political prisoners and um, administrative detention to focus on on G4S. There are a lot of ways in which, as it's become more mainstream, that a number of sort of key Palestinian demands have been diluted or watered down. For example, focusing on settlement products as opposed to broader BDS demands, or for example, some organizations when they pass media, a number of the academic associations in particular, for example, will perhaps not include references to Israeli institutional racism against Palestinian citizens of Israel, or will omit references to the right of return because they're less comfortable with that language. I think it also raises a number of questions of solidarity and the extent to which we're actually taking direction from Palestinians on the ground. So Amy, as our Calgary correspondent, I don't mm -hmm. know if you want to have that uh, title, but as the most person closest to Calgary in this room, we have some breaking news from um, the Sija Twitter account, wondering <laughs> if you could possibly respond to a photo that I will put uh, near you in a second. Uh, tell us what you see. Tell us what your immediate feelings are. Is that Stephen Harper? That is Stephen Harper with one, like that a high-ranking member of Sija. Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs taking photos with Harper at the Stampede, serving burgers. It it's definitely seems like the Calgary Stampede edition of Who Wore It Best. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not just Harper, it's also... I think that's not surprising, however. I think while a lot of uh, sort of discourse around Palestinian solidarity organizing tends to focus on the actions of the Harper government, I think it shouldn't be overlooked that both the Liberals and the NDP 
you know, have always reaffirmed their support of Israel as well as their opposition to, um, to BDS. Yeah, I mean, in the same Twitter account, you have the same people taking a photo with Tom Mulcair. And don't forget Trudeau. Yeah, but I mean, that kind of goes without saying. No? I, I feel that way. Anyways, the Jewish establishment is in Calgary today for the Stampede to take photos with all of the leaders of Canada. With, with that being said, I just, I, I guess, thank you for coming in today. Thanks for having me. It's 10 years. Do you have anything to add, David? It's hard to know how to follow up. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Where does the conversation go after that? <laughs> yeah. Trafe Podcast is Sam Beck and David Zinman. Today's episode was recorded at CKUT 90.3 FM in the shadow of the giant cross of secularism on occupied Ganyahaga territory. Thank you to our director of design, Claire Hertig, and to Sax Syndrome for music that you heard on this episode. All articles we've referenced can be found in the episode notes. You can follow us on Twitter and Tumblr at Trafe, T-R-E-Y-F, or send comments and suggestions to trafepodcast at gmail.com. More episodes soon. Seeds, Jews were forced to seek daily sacrifices. Apostomos Tomas burned the Holy Torah. <laughs>